Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. If you are missing days of your life during your period, meaning that you are not going to work, you are not going to school, you are not going out with your friends or doing, you know, the hobbies that you like to do or the things you like to do during your period, because your period is that uncomfortable and painful, then you have to start thinking for yourself and advocating for yourself that there's a potential for endometriosis. Stress is the inflammation that robs us of life, energy, and happiness. Our typical solutions for gut health and hormone balance have let a lot of us down. We're over-medicated and underserved. At The Less Stressed Life, we're a community of health-savvy women exploring solutions outside of our traditional Western medicine toolbox and training to raise the bar and change our stories. Each week, our hope is that you leave our sessions inspired to learn, grow, and share these stories to raise the bar in your life and home. Access to functional or specialized medicine testing and standard blood work is a big piece of personalizing care plans to help our clients succeed. But getting accounts with multiple labs and ordering and tracking results from many different web portals slows efficiency by bogging us down in admin work. This is why I'm completely obsessed with our podcast sponsor, Rupa Health. It's a single portal that allows you to order from over 20 specialty labs in one incredibly simple dashboard. I'm talking less than 30 seconds to set up your free account and about 30 seconds to order the labs you need. All the results are in one place and I can securely send clients their results with the click of a button. A big advantage for our clients is that standard blood work can be ordered for almost two thirds less than other direct to consumer lab sites. Rupa is a lab concierge, so they send the lab invoices on your behalf if a client pays for their own labs. They help them get set up with a lab draw, navigate testing questions, and they provide the requisition forms. It's literally a dream. Go sign up for free to help streamline your practice and simplify ordering labs for your clients at rupahealth.com. That's R-U-P-A health.com and let them know I sent you when you sign up. You can also check out the show notes for this episode for a short video walkthrough of how I use Rupa Health in my own practice. All right. Today on The Less Stressed Life, I have Dr. Suzanne Fenske. She's a native of the New York area and is double board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. She's also certified by the North American Menopause Society as a provider. And there's a little bit more of a fun background, which I'm going to let her tell us if she wants to. She got accepted to an accelerated medical program, did some training, 
I don't know if it was Mount Sinai. Either way, she did all of her medical school training and found that even though she went to school for all of those years, it didn't really provide her patients with the way she wanted to practice in this comprehensive whole person care that she felt that they really deserved. And so it was at that point she applied and it was accepted to Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine Fellowship and then became board certified in integrative medicine. And then she took a deeper dive into root cause analysis and trained in functional medicine with the Institute of Functional Medicine. So with this unique combo of training, she started Terra MD with a focus on treating complex conditions like hormone imbalances, polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, perimenopause, menopause, chronic pelvic pain, endometriosis, fibroids, recurrent infections, sexual dysfunction, as well as optimizing women's health and well-being during their annual exams. Welcome, Dr. Finsky. Thank you. So you started in New York and you traveled and you came back to New York. I love your story in the bio, but I want to hear your story a little bit more. And I always have this conversation when clients or if there's some doctor blaming that happens in the world, right? And it's like, well, no one wants to see 10, 20, 30 patients a day, right? It's not really like a great model if someone's got a complex issue going on. Like, how do you even approach that? So tell me how this kind of came to be for you, or if you even had some of your own journey that helped you kind of delve a little bit. I think my real question is, why were you open to training in integrative and functional medicine? I think a lot of people in our world tend to be kind of driven by their own personal medical issues or their journey along the way issues they faced. I actually was not driven by my own issues. I've always been driven by my patients. So for me, I always wanted the most amount of knowledge as possible to be able to do the best amount of care as possible. I'm definitely obviously a type A personality. <laughs> a meditated type A personality. (laughs) So, you know, along the way when I had great opportunities, great training and did my OBGYN residency and then did a two-year laparoscopic robotic surgery fellowship at Mount Sinai and then stayed on actually as a faculty at Mount Sinai for many years and was really kind of fell into this niche of taking care of women who had chronic pelvic pain, endometriosis, sexual dysfunction, sexual pain, And did a lot of surgery and felt that, you know, I think that I felt what patients were feeling, right? That the care is sort of really fragmented and very just sort of symptom-based and medicate surgery for the symptom. And that's basically it. And felt that there was more to it than that, which is how I kind of meandered into Dr. Andrew Weil's fellowship and did that to be able to provide more integrative management to my patients, to be able to approach it whole person, whole lifestyle approach and evidence-based modalities from mind-body, from botanical supplements and so on. And then as you dive deeper and deeper into it, right, kind of going down that rabbit hole, I felt that I wanted more of a root cause analysis too, to be able to really link everything together. I think what really drove me into looking at functional medicine was more knowledge in regarding the gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. How long was your fellowship with Andrew Weil's Center for Integrative Medicine? Because you've already been in school for many, many years before this, and then you're essentially joining this fellowship. So I'm wondering how long that was, and if that felt like drinking from a fire hose, or if it just kind of brought everything together as you wanted it to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that I've spent most of my life in school, probably. <laughs> I have spent most of my life in school. So I did the two years in laparoscopic robotic, and then Andrew Wiles was two years. And, you know, I, I went into that for learning more from my patients. But to be very honest, it turned out to be a real awakening to myself. That actually was what changed 
how I was in my own personal health care too. So that was two years. And then IFM, functional medicine can take anywhere from two to three to plus years, depending on kind of how you orchestrate it. It's it's more controls and how you want to, how long fast you want to do it. Right. So my type A is a little bit faster with functional medicine, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Cruise right through that. So here we are. And so now you're working with these these complex cases. And I want to dive in a little bit into an area that doesn't get, I feel, a lot of really great options and kind of, which is endometriosis. And then the things that sometimes go along with it or have similar common denominators like PMDD. And so let's start with endometriosis. And because this is a big area that you help women with, and this is a very challenging, painful, can't go to work, et cetera, situation. So first of all, let's talk about what it is. Diagnosis, is it getting missed? I would say essentially, what does that clinical picture look like when someone's presenting to you with endometriosis? And then we can get into what you do with it. Yeah. So endometriosis, just just so we start from kind of square one, endometriosis is basically a disease in which the tissue that lines the inside of the uterus, the endometrium, is found in places outside of the uterus. So it can be found on the ovaries, the fallopian tubes. There's a layer of tissue called peritoneum that lines our abdominal cavity. And endometriosis can be found anywhere in our bodies, right? I mean, I've had patients who have had monthly nosebleeds, and that was their endometriosis. I've had patients who've had monthly lung collapses due to blood collection in the lungs, and that was their endometriosis. But basically, it's when that tissue, which should really only be inside the uterus, is found somewhere else. But when you get back down to the pathophysiology of what endometriosis is, it's really a disease of estrogen and inflammation. So we know what the cure for endometriosis is. The cure for endometriosis is you know, menopause because of a lack of estrogen. So really it's a disease of estrogen and inflammation. What's really amazing about endometriosis is that, you know, we've known about it for so long and there is research done in many aspects of it, but ultimately we still don't know the cause of it. We know that it's probably multifactorial, that there's definitely a genetic component to it. And we see that with a lot of first-degree relatives, you know, both having endometriosis, but that in and of itself is not enough, right? So the variable expression, right? Some women will have very advanced endometriosis and minimal symptoms, but just sort of incidentally find that along their journey with infertility and get this diagnosis of endometriosis. And some women have what seems to be very minimal endometriosis and very, very intense symptoms. So then you have to factor into play that basically with endometriosis, there's a lot that comes into the picture, much more so than just genetics, and just estrogen and inflammation. Right. And you yeah. touched on something really wonderful in that, yes, it is on, on average, it takes seven to 10 years before a woman gets her diagnosis of endometriosis. And that's a lot of years of pain, a lot of years of issues and pain and just not being heard and women thinking that it's in their head and that, or that this is normal. Right. And, you know, on average, we know that women have to see three to five providers before somebody diagnoses them with endometriosis. We know that it affects 10% of women, but that's probably a huge underestimation on how many women it actually really affects. Well, I didn't know that monthly nosebleeds, lung issues, and in this essentially the tissue that should be in the uterus found anywhere could be endometriosis. I just thought it was thickened uterine lining of the uterus. So that makes me think that it would be difficult to diagnose if it's someone with nosebleeds, right? Um, Does, for example, if it's someone who's got monthly nosebleeds, 
What is the diagnostic criteria for endometriosis? What are you doing for diagnosis of endometriosis? And how do you then go to, I have monthly nosebleeds, and how do you figure out that that's also endometriosis? And do they also have thickened uterine lining at the same time? Or maybe it just depends. It could be one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So the definitive way to diagnose endometriosis is, you know, the gold standard, I should say, in the medical world is doing a laparoscopy and seeing the endometriosis presence in the abdomen. And there's kind of classic ways. Our ability to visually detect endometriosis is only about 60%. So even with a good surgeon, an experienced endometriosis surgeon, they can take a look around in the abdominal cavity, take a look at the most common places that you find endometriosis, and everything looks fine, right? And they can misdiagnosis of endometriosis. For me, I always did biopsies, surgical biopsies of the most common areas. If everything looked completely normal, and a woman came in with a history that really sounds like endometriosis, and I'll touch on that in a minute, then what I would always do is regardless of appearance, do biopsies. Because those biopsies are sent off to pathology and a pathologist will analyze and look for endometriosis. And that's the best way to do it. I will say that even though that's the gold standard for diagnosis, somebody who's experienced with endometriosis can usually diagnose it, you know, very close to 100%, we'll say 90 plus percent based on just symptomatology and examination, actually. Right. So there's a couple of things that I always say to women. And I think that it's really important. If you are missing days of your life during your period, meaning that you are not going to work, you are not going to school, you are not going out with your friends or doing, you know, the hobbies that you like to do or the things you like to do during your period, because your period is that uncomfortable and painful, then you have to start thinking for yourself and advocating for yourself that there's a potential for endometriosis. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really great pearl for them. And although the laparoscopy is, or that essentially like minimally invasive surgery is still invasive and expensive yeah. really yeah. You know, for the diagnosis. So it makes sense that it would not be the automatic thing that happens. And I, when we know how that, how that people can get kind of tossed around depending on their access to medical care as well with that. Let's talk about the symptoms of endometriosis and how you might diagnose someone with just symptoms and exam. Yeah. So symptoms can be variable. The most common usually is pain with your period, like on pain. That's really not just, you know, I had some cramping. I took some Advil or some NSAID and felt better, but significant pain with period, or we call it in the medical world dysmenorrhea. Okay. And that's a classic sign and symptom of it. But also along the same lines is that women can have just non-cyclic pain, just generalized pelvic pain that they feel at other times of the month unrelated to their period. And then another symptom that can come into factor in is pain with sex. And usually pain from endometriosis is pain with penetrative sex and usually deep, felt more deep on deep penetration. There's different things to consider from a gynecological etiology on pain with penetrative intercourse on insertion at the entrance versus deep. But if you have penetrative intercourse and it's pain with deep, then that's another sign or symptom of endometriosis. Got it. Examination, a gynecologist can do an examination and feel that the exam is completely normal, right? But there are things you can also feel an exam. You can actually sometimes feel the scarring And then the uterus and the ovaries are less mobile on examination. You can actually sometimes feel the nodularity or these hardened tissues that you feel in the most common areas where you see endometriosis, which can be kind of behind the uterus and between the uterus and the rectum, which is called the posterior cul-de-sac, or between the bladder and the uterus, which is called the anterior cul-de-sac. 
So there's classic areas that you can kind of feel some thickening and uh, with endometriosis often too. So if someone's having these a sig- if significant pain with period or dysmenorrhea, and more specifically, they're missing work or school or 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 social activities because it is so significant and they don't have a diagnosis or no one's brought up endometriosis, it might be time to see, ask the provider or potentially ask for a referral to another provider or look for another provider that is maybe a little more skilled in endo for that potential diagnosis. And then once they know that this is an issue, what is classically done here? And then what are some things that you do with a broader training? Yeah. So classically in the medical world, endometriosis is managed in two ways, either kind of with suppression of the extra estrogen that's floating around in the body with hormonal therapy. Usually the birth control pill is really, really commonly used and or surgery. And the surgery, like you had mentioned, is a laparoscopy usually. It's not an open surgery, but a minimally invasive surgery with small incisions in a camera where you look around and remove any of the endometriosis. The thing for me that was different with all of this is that that's, you know, that's definitely an option with the birth control pills. You're managing the estrogen component of things. These are kind of band-aids in a way, right? I can't say that we're going to be able to cure endometriosis necessarily, but getting back down to kind of the root cause analysis of it and really approaching more of the full lifestyle approach. And that's how I do things, right? I don't just put band-aids on things with a birth control pill or a surgery, but you want to look at the at diet and nutrition, incredibly important, right? As we mentioned before, it's it's a disease of estrogen and inflammation. So you want to approach these factors, what affects inflammation in the body, right? And whether it's nutrition and what you're putting in your body. And there's, you know, there's a couple of studies that have been done over the years looking at nutrition and endometriosis. And there was one looking at like gluten-free diet and endometriosis. And these are all small, tiny little studies. It would be great to have, you know, a much bigger or large scale study looking at nutrition and endometriosis and the impact. But even taking that and pushing it forward and looking at basically approaching nutrition from an anti-inflammatory standpoint, right? So looking at the most common things and you of all people will know this, the most common factors in diet that cause inflammation and and considering on your own, actually trying to do your own kind of modified elimination diet and eliminating out the most common things like gluten, like dairy, the significantly high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio foods and seeing whether or not that can affect the inflammatory component, but also looking at lifestyle, right? So exercise we know can help with it too. There are certain definite forms of exercise that are even better for for endometriosis and, and pelvic pain disorders in general, like yoga and being able to really kind of work in the pelvic floor area with yoga. Strengthening the core with Pilates is also really helpful. Mind-body therapies, we know reduce stress, reduce inflammation. And then also looking at these women who are really recalcitrant who are doing everything possible, who have, you know, approached this the right way, but still are facing really uncontrolled pain, then I actually would really look at the gut microbiome too and see if there's leaky gut and things like that that are causing inflammation. And I think when you have pain, when you're in this, it's not as obvious, but when you have pain, this is like just sending stress signals to the brain like crazy. It makes me think about someone that had some undiagnosed, essentially pelvic pain and It took her a while to get her into an OB that could diagnose it properly. And then she was able to receive treatment. It was fine. But it was causing a lot of stress, which caused a lot of mineral loss. It infected, of course, her gut microbiome. It was just, it was preventing us from closing the loop of correction when you have pain. So if we can reduce pain as soon as possible, then that's great. The tricky thing, so diet is amazing, but always the tricky thing about anything that has to do with our 
cycle is that it can be immediate and it may be, you may have to compound it over a couple of months sometimes to really see changes. I feel anyway, like yeah. can be right now, but it can be, you know, up to two, three months where you start to continue to see that really take shape. There's a lot of pieces, as you said, right? It's toxic burden, microbiome, stress, food, all the things that are contributing to the inflammation bucket overall. Yeah. Um, since this is an can be an estrogen or is an estrogen issue, I guess you know at the core. Do you look at serum estrogen levels? Do you look at estrogen metabolism? Dutch testing. If you get a endo diagnosis, what are some then tools you use to help maybe focus your treatment? Because the thing about it is there's a lot of options. I think this is good, but sometimes people find that overwhelming. It's like, well, there's a lot of pieces here you can put together and create a better treatment protocol. You know, because suppression and then surgical removal, while surgical removal might remove pain at that moment, all I can think about is, well, then that will just grow back because we didn't really manage the estrogen anyway, right? So you almost have to move. Right. If you're not gonna if you're not gonna suppress your hormones, you know, and you actually want them to be metabolized properly, you've got to do something else. You right. know. What are some things that you do to help focus on what you're gonna do next? No, I think it's a great point. I mean, a lot of women have come to me after having had five laparoscopic surgeries and being in their early 30s. Mm-hmm. Something's not right with that, right? Like that should resonate that something's not right. So yeah, I always personalize things. You know, I don't have like this kind of set formula that I do for every person. But if I have someone who's, you know, recalcitrant to treatment modalities, I think that the Dutch test is a fantastic test because the question that has to come into play in this kind of a deeper dive into the Dutch test and so on is actually looking at, you know, the phase one, phase two metabolism and seeing whether or not that's an issue, right? We know that if a woman is metabolizing inappropriately with, you know, and breaking it down into too much of 16-OH, right? Then you're going to have more active metabolites of estrogen in the body. So in in addition to estradiol, estrone, estriol, you're also going to have more of the 16-OH, which is also acting as an active metabolite as well. And then you have to think about more long-term risks, right? Like we know that endometriosis can cause even more serious conditions later on in life, like ovarian cancer. So you do wonder also about 4-OH and whether if you're metabolizing down into too much of 4-OH and having more of that DNA damage that's occurring. So I do think it's important if you have somebody who's not responding to the lifestyle modifications or the things traditionally done. I mean, for some women, I actually do a completely natural approach to endometriosis and manage it with supplements and lifestyle, and that's it. There is no hormonal activation in any way. But you have to look and think about what else is going on. Does it come down to the gut microbiome? Does it come down to how this woman is metabolizing her estrogens? And is that the issue? Is that the underlying issue? There's a lot of options. And I I want to talk about what endo can look like in perimenopause next. Yeah. But before we get to that, you just brought up a 30-year-old, five surgeries. So from my hormone mentors, you know, what I had learned was that, hey, we would not want to just give hormone progesterone, for example, to someone that can create hormones on their own. However, in this more severe scenario, while you're working on other things, and if you're having issues with those being responsive, do you ever use progesterone even in young women to help balance that estrogen progesterone overall? Because usually when estrogen is high, progesterone is kind of suppressed. So does that ever help as part of treatment? 
Absolutely. I mean, absolutely an option is using a bioidentical, even, you know, FDA approved progesterone that's it's readily covered by their insurance, which is very helpful to a lot of women True. and using that just to mediate. You know, there's a lot of uh, common denominators and this is more sort of my working theory on things, right? There's a term that's used very frequently in this space that I don't love the term, but it's still a true issue in which basically there's higher amounts of estrogen versus progesterone in a woman's body. And this is kind of a similar thing that we see with endometriosis, with fibroids, and even with, you know, PMDD, right? That these are all kind of conditions where you have relatively speaking, higher amounts of estrogen to progesterone that a woman's creating. So if you can either normalize that more so, and again, endometriosis is a little bit more difficult, it's a little, a little bit more severe in the symptomatology, but if you can normalize those hormones, either, you know, ideally naturally with a uh, certain supplement regimens, or if you have to cycle back some of a, I prefer bioidentical progesterone into a woman to help her normalize it herself, then absolutely modalities that I would use. Yeah. There's, again, there's just a lot of options and that's not meant to be overwhelming. It's just that there's much more than birth control and removing some lining and scar tissue. It's just more. Yeah, I think that's that's the key point. I think that's the key point that it, that I think it's always really important. Unfortunately, in the medical world, and I'm I'm sure this is the experience to a lot of listeners that you have, is that it sometimes can be a very patriarchal type of field where you walk in and you're told that this is what you're going to do. You're either going to take this pill or do this surgery. And I think it's just important to know in general that that might be the right option for you. But alternatively, there are still many ways of managing it. And you should feel in control of managing a disease that you're the one who's battling, right? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I want to come back to fibroids and PMDD because like you said, they're common denominators in this estrogen dominant or (laughs) conversation. But before we do that, I like to think about, you know, we go, this is a condition of a cycling woman, and then we can drop into perimenopause for up to eight years, right? Before going into menopause and I think we're coming into menopause awareness month. So we'll give a little lip service to this conversation. But my experience or mentorship has said that, you know, perimenopause is not as graceful when your hormones are kind of like cattywampus, (laughs) like you have, (laughs) like you have a lot of estrogen. And so what does endometriosis look like in perimenopause? Do you see things decrease or do you actually see some of those issues with like low progesterone stores, et cetera, just kind of exacerbating and it doesn't actually look better and it just feels kind of sucky? (laughs) <laughs> for the client. Yeah, no, I love that you brought this up because I actually commonly see women, fibroids and endometriosis, all of a sudden having a diagnosis, right, in their 40s, which is pretty atypical, right? Because we know that endometriosis is a condition, fibroids is different, but endometriosis is a condition that's gone on, you know, probably well before that. I'm sure that probably we're having symptomatology of it or actual signs of it in their 20s, mm-hmm. but we're asymptomatic at that point. But with the fluctuations in hormones that happen with perimenopause, and we know that there's different stages of perimenopause, right? So the first thing that happens with our hormones is that in our 30s, we know that testosterone starts to decline, but it's more of a gradual decline. We know that later 30s, 40s, all of a sudden there's a much more drastic decline in progesterone. And then you have this state, right, where there's higher amounts of estrogen, lower amounts of progesterone. Then you take a woman who has fibroids, PMDD, right, one of the classic signs of early perimenopause is worsening PMS and endometriosis. 
And you already have that situation where these are disorders that are characterized by too much estrogen or a woman's own estrogen. And then you compound it by now she's in early perimenopause where her progesterone levels are even lower <laughs> than they were. And so, yeah, I've had many, many times women come in all of a sudden having a diagnosis of endometriosis in their early 40s which has been masked up until this point, or very commonly is to have a lot of women in their 40s experience significant fibroid problems, again, because they have all of this estrogen that's not being balanced out by progesterone because their natural stores of progesterone have now gone down. Mm, What's more classic in late perimenopause, which is kind of the perimenopause that everyone really traditionally thinks about, Mm. is estrogen deficiency. So now your estrogen has dropped down, and now you have the brain fog and the hot flashes and the night sweats and the vaginal dryness, the things that are more classically thought of in perimenopause. But what you brought to light is that there is this earlier stage of perimenopause, and that's more classically characterized by lower levels of progesterone and higher levels of estrogen. Well, you just mentioned that a classic symptom of early menopause is worsening PMDD. And so I want to talk about PMDD because, you know, if we thought that endometriosis or clients with endometriosis ever had gaslighting issues where they're like, it's fine, you're not really in that much pain, I would expect PMDD to almost be worse because I feel like it's mostly emotionally presented. Can we talk about, first, let's just classify what's PMDD. Let's talk about why it's related, which you have already touched on a little bit, and kind of how you diagnose that. You know, just again, the issues of estrogen um, when it's not, when it's kind of uncontrolled. Yeah. So PMDD is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And it's, you know, a worsening case of basically PMS, premenstrual syndrome. And there's multiple symptoms that fall into this, but examples of symptoms can be, you know, Mood. Mood is a significant one. So depression, anger, rage, irritability, anxiety, bouts of crying that are just spontaneous bouts of crying. And then you have more of the physical symptoms too, which is the bloating, the breast tenderness, the water weight retention, fatigue. And uh, there's just, you know, a myriad of symptoms, basically. And PMDD, by sort of checking in boxes and having a certain number of symptoms in each category, gives you this technical diagnosis of PMDD, right? Basically, what happens in And what I had touched on was that it's very common that we, you know, estrogen is a wonderful hormone, does lots of beautiful things. The way that our bodies work is that you want this balance, right? So anything in excess, anything in too little is always going to be sort of a bad thing, right? So progesterone, I always call is sort of the great balancing hormone, your natural harmonizer, basically. And it works in concert with estrogen and balances out estrogen. When you have too much of this estrogen in your body relative to the amount of progesterone in your body, then these are classic signs and symptoms that you're going to experience. If you time it with the cycle, right? So our natural cycle is that the second part of our cycle ovulation up until our menstruation is more dominated by progesterone, right? So your progesterone is supposed to rise with ovulation and balance out the estrogen at that point. Mm -hmm. What happens with PMS, PMDD, is that you know, you're not getting that appropriate rise in your progesterone to help balance out your estrogen. And then here you are a week before your period or a few days before your period with these classic too much estrogen symptoms. Mm -hmm. So irritability, rage, anger, bouts of crying, bouts of hysteria, feeling uncontrolled. And this is, I agree with you with the gaslighting because this significantly impacts women's lives, significantly impacts. You cannot function the way that you normally function. You cannot function in your 
your relationships, in your work, in your personal life, with your family in general. So it really does take over completely. And again, this is one that's marked very much so by not enough progesterone. So in theory, this could, quote unquote, come out of nowhere to a woman who is simply just like living life and didn't have that much progesterone in the first place. And then she's dropping that as she's like getting into her late thirties, potentially or early forties. And it drops more and it's not balancing. I'm just kind of reiterating. It's not balancing out that estrogen. And so then around ovulation or around or right before the cycle, these symptoms can feel like they came out of nowhere. They're really severe. And then they can kind of ebb and flow and go away. And then they come back again two weeks later and they're crazy again. Right. Yeah. So that would be a case where that woman may really, she might have a life change if she had some progesterone at that moment. Yes. Probably. Yeah. You know, yeah. whether topical or oral or whatever, depending on that person. If someone was, you know, what you said with diagnosis, it was really, it's categories of symptoms. That's it. So there's no mm-hmm. testing that's required for PMD. No. no. That's interesting, which also tells me, I don't have strong feelings about this, but it's just my perception from working with clients that it, I don't think it's very common to test our serum hormone levels either, like our estrogen or progesterone. Would you, like, you could probably offer a lot more <laughs> around that being trained in both places. Is that true? And and why is that, do you think? Why do we not just well, look at that? Yeah. I mean, our serum testing, when we do check for serum, we're, first of all, it comes down to timing it appropriately in the cycle, right? You want to make sure you're, you're having your blood work. If you're going to have the blood work done, you want to make sure it's being done during the right time of your cycle. And that's really dependent on, you know, how long your cycle is. You always hear this, t- this classic number that you want to check your day 21 progesterone and kind of estrogen look at that way. But that really also depends on how long your cycle is. That's great. Day 21, if you have a classic 28 day cycle, but if you're cycles much longer or much shorter, that's not going to be the ideal time to do it either. The issue with serum testing for your hormones is that, well, the only hormone, the only estrogen serum testing looks at is estradiol, which is E2. It does not generally look at estrone E1 or estriol E3. Mm-hmm. And those are the, those we actually, as women, make three different estrogens, estrone, estradiol, and estriol. Actually, during the fetal time period, we also have estetrol, E4, circulating in the body too. But the three hormones, the three estrogens that we make generally are estrone, estradiol, and estriol. And that's one limiting factor with doing serum testing is that you're not getting the full picture. Mm-hmm. Also, progesterone. Progesterone is really hard. It doesn't come through very well on serum testing. It unfortunately comes through much more so with, you know, saliva and urine testing mm-hmm. and just not as accurate to do with serum testing, which becomes a, a limiting factor also with it. T- totally. Because I don't think, I don't feel like saliva or urine testing would be very common in a conventional practice. For it is not. No. Yeah, it yeah. is not. <laughs> so our testing just kind of sucks in general. It does. <laughs> or it, you know, 100% and, right. <laughs> and so you're not going to even be able to find it. So it's very possible that when someone's having, so this is great. I make, I need to make sure I title this episode correctly. So the right people see it, because if you feel like you're having this rage or anxiety coming out of nowhere and you're in maybe your late thirties and it actually times shortly before your cycle, and maybe it's paired with breast tenderness or something that you didn't have for a while. And now it's there, you know, it may be progesterone's declining. You can't balance that estrogen and it's coming out like this, which is like you said, significantly affecting your life. Like that's not a way to live. How did we handle this? And before we knew about it, I have no idea. I'm not. Oh my I mean, gosh. How do we handle it? We handled it with antidepressant medications, anti-anxiety medication. Yeah, I guess <laughs> that's so. how it's still traditionally handled. <laughs> I, true. That's a, that's a sad, true statement. I think about 
when we think about the big picture of estrogen excess and I think about, and we don't have to make, I, I take like a very like non-frightened approach. I'm like, well, we live in a world that's like full of endocrine disruptors. So, you know, it's possible that all this stuff has climbed. I was actually pondering and wondering if we have any metrics or numbers around some of these estrogen conditions, endo or any of them, compared to other parts of the world. I don't Mm -hmm. think we can compare it to history because like, unfortunately, the thing with history is that it feels like this is something we never really identified very well. And we still are not identifying it very well. So I don't think historically even really matters. And I could be wrong. But internationally, is do Americans have more issue with this? I mean, Europeans and Americans are kind of similar, honestly, from health right. status. But maybe right. anyway, do you have any do you have any knowledge of that? <laughs> do we have any stats like that? I would love to know about that. Actually, look at the studies. I have to imagine just extrapolating that given the sad diet, right, the standard American diet, that we probably have more symptomatic endometriosis and inflammatory conditions in general because what we're putting in our body tends to be very inflammatory. Yeah, it's tricky because the standard American diet is really starting to leach into almost any culture. I mean, when you That's travel true, to actually, you're places, right. you kind of everywhere it. now. <laughs> yeah, you kind of see it when you travel. You're like, oh, there's no garbage. I remember going to Central America in college and like, oh, there's no garbage system here. And when everything was biodegradable, that was no problem. And now on the side of the road, there's like soda and chip stands. And like, you can see the garbage problem since the, you know, we have this non-biodegradable stuff. Anyway, total random side notes. Speaking of random side note, you brought up that there's a different kind of estrogen while you're having, like when you're pregnant. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. is that, so estrogen's a growth hormone. Is that, is this just special estrogen for growing babies? <laughs> We don't really know the purpose of estetrol, but we know that it's produced by the fetal liver. So, you know, it produ- it's, uh, circulates when during gestation. And so obviously a woman's exposed to it during while she's carrying a pregnancy. And then also, but I would assume you're right. It's probably linked towards being, you know, growth related. And that's what it is because it's only during that time period of life. Interesting. Just curious. It's actually interesting now because there happens to be, you know, E4 is being used. I'm sure you know now. There's actually a new birth control pill that came out with uh, E4 also. I don't know. Yeah. Very interesting. Another topic for another day. Let's make sure we get to fibroids. So the other condition of, of a lot of estrogen. Let's talk about fibroids, what that looks like. And will you differentiate fibroids? And then can that present as fibrocystic breasts? as well? Is that like the same mechanism? Interesting one. So fibrocystic breasts and fibroids are different entities, but both of them could be very well related to, you know, again, the too much estrogen relative to progesterone phenomenon that we kind of touched on already. Fibroids are basically this disease in which you grow these benign, non-cancerous, soft muscle tumors basically in the uterus. So the uterus is, is basically a huge muscle very strong muscle, obviously, can give birth to human beings. So <laughs> very strong muscle. And fibroids are tumors that created in the muscle itself. It is, again, multifactorial on why and who gets fibroids. We know that there's huge genetic component too. We know that there are certain ethnicities that are have more of a propensity for developing fibroids. And we have to actually start thinking, which I don't think anyone does, at looking at metabolism, estrogen, does it come into play also with fibroids as well? 
And when I say fibroids, there's multiple different types of fibroids, right? Fibroids is not just one type of tumor. Depending on where it is in the uterus, it kind of gets a different classification. So if the fibroid is sort of attached to the outside of the uterus, it's called a subserosal fibroid. If it's in the wall of the uterus, it's an intramural. And the really pesky ones are the ones that actually grow into the cavity of the uterus. They're called submucosal, and that causes really heavy, heavy, heavy bleeding. And they have different symptoms too. You know, being the location of them is important to know, not just kind of from an academic standpoint, but knowing about the symptoms that go along with it. So 60% of women have fibroids. It's more common in African-Americans. And we know that we see it basically with the symptoms associated with it can be really heavy bleeding, like I mentioned, with your period. Those tend to be the fibroids that are either in the cavity of the uterus called submucosal or ones that are in the wall of the uterus, intramural, but pushing up against the cavity of the uterus. Mm. The ones that are not having any interaction with the cavity of the uterus do not cause heavy bleeding. But if they get big and fibroids can get very, very big. And in the medical world, we like to allow you to understand your fibroids by comparing them to different fruit. I'm not sure where that came into play, but that's what we do. So you have a plum size, you have an orange size, you have a cantaloupe size. Holy moly, those are huge. (laughs) Yeah, they get very big. And unfortunately, that's where the other symptoms associated with fibroids come into play. And those are what we call the bulk symptoms. So urinary frequency, pelvic pain pressure, looking and feeling kind of like you're pregnant, right? Seeing an enlarging abdomen, difficulty having bowel movements, constipation, pain with intercourse, penetrative intercourse again, when you see the mass of these fibroids really pushing down on the pelvic floor. Mm, That's really fascinating to imagine a plum or an orange. I was not (laughs) imagining fibroids being that size before. I would imagine that, and I don't know that you brought this up, but I would imagine that ultrasound would be a very useful tool for assessing and diagnosing whether you have fibroids. Is that kind of the main thing or the least? Yeah, the main way usually usually it's that you diagnose it with an ultrasound. Okay. So if someone's having, we should maybe like relist that list of things they should maybe go in and ask about that and potentially probe for an ultrasound to look for fibroids. And if at first first they don't find it, maybe they should look again. But urinary frequency, pelvic pain and pressure, enlarged abdomen, that would be consistent. Constipation, pain with intercourse, that's all I wrote down. (laughs) What else did I miss? (laughs) Heavy bleeding, heavy menses. Yeah. Which is tricky. We should actually just mention what normal bleeding is. It's actually not a crazy amount, isn't it? No. So, you know, technically, right, if you want to get done, it's it's 80 milliliters of over the course of what normal bleeding is for the course of the whole entire cycle Mm -hmm. is 80 milliliters. So more than that's going to be heavy bleeding. We know that the traditionally, right, we know that anywhere between 21 and 35 days is a normal menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And that usually period lasting up to seven days is normal. So since fibroids seem pretty invasive, depending on how what size they are, and I would just imagine that these could go right next to endometriosis. If you have endometriosis, why wouldn't you have fibroids? I mean, how often do you see those coexisting? I do see them coexisting frequently, yes. Okay. But you also see, you know, fibroids independently without any endometriosis. For sure. Yeah. That would be much more common, I would imagine. How common are fibroids? I'm sorry. How common? How common? Well, again, they say 60% of women have fibroids. 60. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. So good. Let's talk about this. Fibroids. So my functional training was like enzymes and different things, which people ask me, but fibroid questions, like, I don't 
I'm not a fibroid expert. I feel like go to Suzanne. <laughs> Please go to Suzanne. <laughs> what do people usually do for fibroids? What's the conventional and the integrative or functional approach for fibroids? Yeah. So the more conventional modalities are depending on the symptomatology associated with fibroids. So if the bulk symptoms are what exists, then either you look at how old a woman is, right? If she is close to menopause and conventional medicine, the options are either to use a medication that puts her into menopause, essentially by lowering her hormones. Yeah. And bridging her to menopause. Surgery is another Surgery is another option, and there's multiple different surgeries. Obviously, the most definitive management for fibroids is a hysterectomy, removal of the uterus with the fibroids, and or myomectomy, which is removal of just the fibroids themselves. Or in the more functional integrated medicine space, again, you're going to kind of get down to the root cause analysis again and look and see whether there's another etiology for the growth of these fibroids. So you kind of want to look again at estrogen metabolism and see what's going on. So I actually worked on a study looking at vitamin D and fibroids. And then there's actually a murine model, also a mouse study that also looked at vitamin D and fibroids. And they found that low levels of vitamin D was linked to fibroid growth. So who isn't affected by low levels of vitamin D? I'm up in the Northeast. It's very common to have vitamin D deficiency and insufficiency. So these are things that can definitely impact fibroids and should be approached. There's some studies that looked at actually EGCG and its impact also on fibroids as well. And I think that in the more you know integrative and functional medicine space, you're going to look at these things and try to employ them as well into your management and not just approach it by simply putting them into, you know, medical menopause doing a hysterectomy. Yeah. Well, I think the challenge is, is that it's painful. It's probably grown somewhat slowly since it's in a massive tissue or cells, right? But yet trying to reverse that or correct, you know, you got to deal with the orange or plum that's there <laughs> that's there at that time. So sometimes I talk about this from a perspective of every issue, you can look through the lens of like, is it a structural thing and emotional or whatever, and then nutritional piece. And so if I was going to do things in my nutritional realm, I still think there needs to be a structural intervention depending on the size of that, right? Where they need to be seeing mm-hmm. someone like Dr. Finsky or someone who can help refer them to the right resources to potentially have that removed. I cannot imagine a very large fibroid, if you don't remove that, how that is not like really challenging for your life. Like, I just don't see how that, I don't see how that equates. Like this is in the wrong spot. (laughs) This does not belong here. It's impairing things significantly. Mm -hmm. And I would guess, I mean, man, 60% of people with having this, I would guess that this gets missed a lot or overlooked a lot as a potential cause of a lot of like quite a mess of symptoms. A lot of, yeah. a lot of, I have a lot of empathy for these fibroids. Yes, but not everyone is growing cantaloupes and apples and oranges. Yes, thank God. <laughs> Some people are just growing blueberries, thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, when you have, you always have to take into you know consideration the emergency of the situation. There are some women who have really, really, really heavy bleeding, requiring multiple blood transfusions for management mm-hmm. of fibroids, True. and that needs immediate attention and needs to be immediately dealt with. Yeah. And then, one hundred percent, I've seen so many women over the course of my years working that had really large fibroids, and you can still manage things again in other realms and other modalities, but you still have to take care of the fact that there is this cantaloupe growing in their belly that's very symptomatic for them mm-hmm. and you know as much as we can do right that's that's the one key facet to integrative is really combining together 
these alternative modalities and traditional modalities and really tailoring them to the person is that you're right, that needs to be dealt with and likely surgically. Mm -hmm. There is other modalities too that are more minimally invasive, like uterine fibroid embolization, which is a procedure usually done by interventional radiologists, where they're able to really kind of target the blood supply to the fibroids themselves and block those blood supplies and then basically allowing the fibroids to necrose or die off and shrink in size. Mm. I wonder if there's pain and what the symptoms look like after that. I would expect maybe some bleeding. There is. Yeah, there's a lot of pain. There's, you know, still recovery time, definitely one week, at least, you know, kind of out of work to deal with pain management. And sometimes you do need to spend a night in the hospital because of the pain that's associated with it. Mm-hmm. And then the other side effect that could be seen is just, you know, abnormal vaginal discharge afterwards as the fibroid is necrosing and dying and laying out all that extra tissue. Yeah, so much to think about here that affects most people. Oh, man. All right. Well, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot. We covered, we did a nice little one-on-one on endometriosis, brought that to light, and then covered some PMDD, which also not well recognized all the time. Hopefully really helpful to some women that are entering into that perimenopause state that feel like their emotions are a little funky right now that it may not be PMDD, but it may just be a decline in those overall hormones. And if they're really out of range, it could be quite significant. And then lastly, with fibroids. So such a wealth of knowledge you are. Thank you so much. Um, I had one more question. You brought up different ethnicities had maybe a greater predisposition to more fibroids, which could mean anything here, you know, is there actually a difference genetically in other ethnicities in like detox genes or mechanisms that would cause this? Or does it seem to be more of like a, so that would be nature or is it a nurture thing where it's like, I mean, I think it's probably both, but is there like an actual science? Like, is there something different inside certain in the genetics of different ethnicities that allow for estrogen issues to become a bigger issue? Yeah, I think it comes down to it's definitely both and it's definitely multifactorial, right? So we know that there's genetics that are there are chromosomal abnormalities and genes associated with these conditions with fibroids, with endometriosis, which tends to come into play more so in certain populations. And then definitely there's a you know, nurture as well as, as as you're saying, where that come into play with lifestyle that can affect and impact these things as well. I think it's actually would be really curious to look at really focus in on metabolism of your estrogens across different ethnicities and see if we see patterns associated with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll send it to the people in research. Yeah. Yeah. That ideas. has not been looked at, but that actually would be really interesting to see if, you know, certain ethnicities have more of an issue with whether it's phase one, phase two yeah. um, or phase three metabolism. Yeah. It's definitely curious that we could do because that would affect their ability to metabolize drugs and everything else. So. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Fenske, where can people find you online, your practice, which has telehealth and in-person, and you teach classes? Where can people find you? Yeah, so www.taramd.com. Yeah, where did that name come from? So are you familiar with Buddhism? Well, not not to where I would know what Tara is in Buddhism. Yeah, so I'm one of these strange people, actually, that double majored in college in obviously the pre-medical sciences, but then my other major was religion. I don't know why. My parents were quite nervous and curious as to what I was going to do with it. But I just thought it was really fascinating to understand people from different religions. So I was really intrigued by Buddhism. I've always been really intrigued by Buddhism. I'm ethnically Jewish, but, (laughs) but I like to say I'm Judist. 
And <laughs> Tara is like, you know, the the deity, the, the wonderful goddess Tara in Buddhism. And she represents so many different forms in Buddhism. And I like to think about that when I'm approaching women, that everything's really personalized in so many different forms. And that, you know, Tara in Buddhism is just this amazing deity. She's linked to nurturing. She's linked to health. And that's what we should be linked to, right? As a medical practice. Yeah, I like, it's fun to hear about that because one, we'll remember you more for that. And two, it's like a nice guiding mission and light and principles by which to go from. So very cool. Well, I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much for coming on and talking all about estrogen and the things that are actively causing issues for people. And hopefully this episode's very helpful for them. Thank you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Sharing and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help us succeed with our mission to help integrate the best of East and West and empower you to raise the bar on your health story. Just go to reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. That's reviewthispodcast.com forward slash less stressed life. And you'll be taken directly to a page where you can insert your review and hit post.